from PRX. We have a favor to ask. One of our advertisers is conducting a survey, and we'd be grateful for your help answering a few of their questions. It'll take less than 10 minutes of your time, and your participation helps our show. You can go to slatestudy.com right now to complete the short survey. Thanks. Today on Studio 360, how a legendary actress became an even more legendary acting teacher. She had to come up with all this grounding reality because of the, otherwise she would just fly off into the wings because she was so innately theatrical. Uta Hagen on her birth centennial. Plus, I'm an artist that uses the museum as my palette. How the artist Fred Wilson's work isn't just in museums, it's about museums. I found a lot of problematic issues within museum display. You know, the collections are the collections, fantastic, but it's how they talk about them, how they display them, is extremely different from one museum to, to the other. And how people react to them, relate to them, is different. That and more is ahead on Studio 360, right after this. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. So here we are at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, it's the end of the day, and you can hear the babble of uh, happy Met art-going humanity leaving, so we can just have it to ourselves. At closing time at the Met in New York City, the museum guards enact this daily ritual where they systematically herd the visitors out of each of the galleries, down, down, down from the upper floors, and then into the Great Hall on the ground by the exits. For a lot of museum goers on any given day, it's the first time they even notice the guards. But the conceptual artist Fred Wilson is always very aware of them. He was a museum guard himself in the 1970s as an undergraduate at the State University of New York at Purchase. I was on a shift that was 24 hours. It's interesting, you stand there and people walk right by you. They don't, you know, it's like you're a part of the walls. As if you are something that's like anything else in the museum, like the art. Eventually, that college experience led him to make an art piece about guards. It was an installation in 1991 called Guarded View. In that piece, four headless mannequins, brown mannequins dressed in guards' uniforms, stood on a platform. The idea was to make visitors acknowledge the fact that museum guards in New York and elsewhere, many of them, like Fred, African-American, are essentially invisible to them. Fred Wilson has spent a lot of his artistic career examining the way art and artifacts are chosen and exhibited, which is why we decided to meet and talk at the Met. He wants everybody, the curators as well as the visitors, to think about how and why particular works make their way into museums. Like when his piece Guarded View first went up at the Whitney Museum in the 90s. He added a performance art bit to the piece that drove home his point. Basically, at the Whitney years and years ago, they were asking artists to give tours of particular exhibitions. They invite you to come to lunch with all the docents and the education staff 
So it was a great lunch. And then I said, excuse me, I'm going to change into my costume now. They were like, oh, great. Oh, that's terrific. And so I, I left, and I know guards in a lot of different museums. And they gave me a uniform. I put it on and stood inside, next to the sign that said, Fred Wilson speaks at 2 o'clock. And they all came down from lunch, milled around in front of me, waiting for me to show up. And I said, well, let's get this thing going. And of course, they got all embarrassed. They flustered, and of course, the people I knew were really embarrassed. <laughs> no, there must have, I, was, I read about that. It must have been like a serious mortification <laughs> moment for those people. Well, you know, they giggled and stuff. But really, you put on the uniform and you disappear. Yeah. And then I walked around the museum criticizing, commenting on the exhibition. I mean, I was young and had that kind of moxie. And, and, and did people look at you and go like, what's that guard doing? Well, yeah, people start following this group because I was just sort of reading the exhibition in a very different way. The relationship between my life and what the artworks they had on the wall differed. And so I, I brought out the various conundrums in some of the juxtapositions of artworks as well as some of the subjects of some of the artworks and it related to what actually was going on in the real world at that time. Right. And then part of your practice as an artist became messing around with museums, right? And their collections and yes. what they were or weren't yes. showing. I kind of found a lot of problematic issues within museum display. You know, the collections are the collections, fantastic, but it's how they wrote about them, how they talk about them, how they display them is extremely different from one museum to, to the other. And how people react to them, relate to them, is different because of how they talk about them. So you have graciously agreed to take us on a little Fred Wilson tour of some of your favorite or most interesting and intriguing places at the museum. Okay. Where, where, where are we going first? We're going to absolutely my favorite space in the museum. Great, let's go. Fred led me out of the Great Hall, past the Byzantine and medieval galleries, and then we squeezed into this cozy little wood-paneled room. It was my first time there. This is the Studiolo from the Ducal Palace in Gubbio, which is an Italian city, uh, and it was created in 1478 to roughly 1482. And what was done in it, in that palace? 500 years ago. Well, a studiolo is a place of contemplation, of study, of the arts, of the sciences. A studio for all of the humanities. That's right, exactly. And it's a place uh, that they get away from what's going on in the world, what their life is normally, and then come in here to, to study. When you come in here, it doesn't matter what's going on out in the other galleries, it gets quiet in here. And you become quiet. You really want to be kind of quiet. And so that's in the hustle and bustle of New York and then the phoneticness of the museum. I love coming in here and just recentering. As a child, did you come to the Met regularly? Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, my mother was uh, an art teacher. Oh, really? An elementary school teacher for a lot of my life. And, uh, so she bred life. you to do this Oh, she was really profession. into it. You know, I always thought, I thought everybody's mother taught them color theory as a kid. I didn't realize that that wasn't the case. And uh, I took classes here in high school. If you go to school, you're here during the day. You're here when the people are gone. You go in the back rooms. As you walk through downstairs, you'd see these sculptures you know, major sculptures like you'd see in the Greek collection areas and elsewhere. And they were just draped casually with plastic. 
Um, and so it was the first time I realized this is not the way objects live. Objects can move and be in various different uh, environments. And just the, the idea that this was one way to sort of experience art, but these objects can actually be in other environments, and they're telling you different things, they're, they're projecting other things. And um, I guess it was really from that moment that I became a little more attuned and li I'm extremely comfortable in the institution to be able to later critique it. So it gives you some different kind of standing to be the, you know, enfant terrible <laughs> critiquer, I guess. <laughs> right, exactly. You know? I was really mad when I got out of college because I thought it'd be, you know, the art world was, you know, like the college world, you know, everybody was on a sort of e even level. And in fact, I found it, well, no, you know, my age, uh, but also uh, racially speaking. All that made me really want to shake the institutions up and, and make them look at themselves. Right. Because what they're talking about, how they're, they're putting out things is really affecting the public unknowingly. Right. And uh, I wanted to affect the public, but also the museum community. And uh, so the piece, I, don't, I guess we can call it a piece, the, the thing that made the world widely aware of, of Fred Wilson was this thing you did in Maryland in 1992, mm -hmm. Mining the Museum. Yes. What was that? It was my first project in a museum, very exciting to do, and, and never expected a museum would you know, actually invite me to do something like that. The Maryland Historical Society, and what I decided to do is look at their collection, talk to everybody in the institution, and talk to people from outside the museum as to find out what their thoughts are about the museum, and then create a work that was very specific to that museum, to their collection, to their community. So it's a museum exhibit that is Fred Wilson's work of art? Yes, the exhibit is an immersive Fred Wilson work of art. And give some examples of the pieces. Well, so have you a know, sense of mostly what the, the, the trouble you were making. Well, yeah, big troublemaker. A museum like that has very little labels. Everything's about connoisseurship. So I decided, well, I will follow along with what they do. They have really incredibly beautiful reposé silver that's a specialty of Baltimore from the 19th century. So I found a really beautiful set, and I put that on From view. their vaults. From their vaults. And looking through their, their ledger books, I also located slave shackles. And I put the slave shackles in the display case with the silver under the heading of metalwork. 1773 to nine, I forget what the dates were, but that was all I did. Because, you know, whose hand serves the silver? Who could have created those objects in apprenticeship situations at the end of slavery? But certainly, whose labor produced the wealth that could produce the silver? And so that's kind of how the whole show went. Yes. <laughs> there was no shaming involved. There's, it was just what the museum does. Put, the, put things out there. Connect these dots. Yeah, in, connect in, Among all of their dots. That's right. All that's right. right. And so it made a huge splash in the world, in the art world and the world at large. And this, I think, bears repeating 27 years ago. I tell you, and I can't believe people are still talking about it, but it's, yeah. it's amazing. It changed my life, and, uh, but it was a great cathartic experience. Yeah. I got to speak back. Because, you know, I love museums. I love museums. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, museum people are my peeps, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They understand what I'm talking about. Uh, one museum director uh, said to me, he, he walked through the historical society, and he just looked at everything, and, you know, looked like a historical society. And then when he got to the third floor, which is where my exhibition was, I had the entire third floor, he went through that, and he saw how subjective my project was. But then when he walked back through the museum, he realized how subjective the museum was. 
And so that, for me, is why I do what I do. The next stop on Fred Wilson's Met tour wasn't a gallery or a work of art, but a space in between two galleries. It's the walk from a room of sculpture from ancient Greece into a gallery of African and oceanic art full of fabrics and wooden objects. You start in a place of great amounts of light where the sculpture is, and then... I guess we're going to Africa. Yes, I see a map of Africa. Yes. Almost always, when you come to Africa, Oceania, you come into a darkened space. You know, it's a physical thing that one experiences it but doesn't really comprehend, but it does sort of mark the works in a certain way by the transition, by the environment. We have daytime in the Greek and Roman areas, and then into Africa, you're getting in a much dimmer environment. And of course, it makes sense for a museum because you know light doesn't affect stone, whereas other more fragile materials, wood, textile, you can't have it in, in, in a bright space like that. But still... Africa in, is sunny as well. Well, yeah, there's a lot of sun in Africa. You know, if, if one sort of thinks about that, it does set the tone for how all these objects exist in the world. The messages that are being transferred is quite interesting to me. One feels that you're really going from one entirely different reality to another entirely different reality. But are they so completely different, actually, so if, if you meet somebody, a stranger, and they ask you, well, what's your work like? And, and, and they say, well, you sound like you're a museum curator. Are you a curator? Well, <laughs> I, I'm an artist that uses the museum as my palette. Uh, but in an artistic way, I wouldn't, the way I do things is not how a museum should do it because, you know, I'm making you think about something perhaps beyond the art. You're doing juxtapositions that are supposed to disconcert you, maybe. That's right, and Which make you think something else. most curators in most museums don't do. <laughs> no, they're not trying to do that. For our last stop, we headed upstairs into the vast labyrinthine galleries where the 19th century European paintings are hung. Right. Here we are. We were standing in front of a gorgeous portrait painted in the 1860s. This is called Bashi Bazouk, and it's by Jean-Léon Jérôme, a French artist who made these incredibly delicate and uh, complex, beautifully rendered images. And he went uh, on kind of a Middle Eastern tour and came back and made many, many paintings from that experience. This is a portrait of a young black man or boy dressed up in extremely fancy exotic outfit in satins and extremely colorful fabric and tassel. It's a great hat. It's a fantastic. You can almost feel the softness with your eyes of the material and the silkiness of his skin. I mean, it is a gorgeously realistic it, portrait. It's, it's sumptuous. However, the Bashi Basuk were mercenaries, and so they made their money by looting and pillaging, and they would go into a town and just wreak havoc, killing everyone and destroying towns. So it's a highly romanticized image. And out of that context, oh, it's just a beautiful painting of a right. black man. I love the painting. <laughs> you know, it's an incredible image of this young black man. It gives him a certain amount of humanity. But one has to be you know, really aware of Jerome's ability to sort of forget reality 
I mean, I understand his interest in the beauty of individuals or the exoticness of the costume, but it really points to either his worldview or his ability to block out what was really going on in the world. What it does also do, now that you know a little bit, it makes you look at everything else and consider what is the backstory, what is the reality. What don't I know about this picture? What don't I know about this picture? Who is this artist and what is his mindset or his, his milieu or whatever? that sort of fans out to all the works in, in the museum. This is just a, a really heightened conundrum, a heightened juxtaposition, right. uh, which I find really fascinating. Yeah. Well, Fred Wilson, this makes me want to always attend museums with you. Um, <laughs> thank you so much. Well, thank you. It was thoroughly enjoyable to be in the museum with you. Fred Wilson has a new show up right now that consists of his huge phantasmagorical Murano glass chandeliers that he's made. It's up at the Pace Gallery in New York through October 12th. Coming up next, the actress Amanda Peet remembers an acting exercise from her favorite acting teacher, where you pretend you're on the phone with somebody when another call comes in. It's like if you're talking to your mom and then your agent called on the other line, you would go from being like, I don't know, I just don't feel well. I just feel like I'm going to be coming down with someone. Hold on a second. Hello? Oh, yeah, sure, I can um, definitely be there, yeah. How the acting coach Uta Hagen instructed and inspired so many performers. She really wanted to instill in all of us the idea of just being a journeyman actor and a citizen in the world and an observer. That's next on Studio 360. This is the centennial year of the birth of Uta Hagen. When I got to New York in the 70s, I started hearing about her from theater friends as one of the great, amazing acting teachers. I didn't know until a little later that she'd been a great stage actor as well. One of her most famous OMG performances was in 1962 as Martha in the original Broadway production of Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. And maybe you didn't have it in it. Stop it, Martha. The hell I will. See, Georgie Boy didn't have much stuff. He uh, wasn't particularly aggressive. In fact, he was a sort of a flop. You know, a great big fat flop. I said stop it, Martha. Hope that was an empty bottle, George. You don't want to waste good liquor. Not on your salary, not on an uh, associate professor's salary. See, he wasn't particularly good at fundraising, uh, trustees' dinners. He, he didn't have any personality, you know what I mean? Which was a big disappointment to Daddy, as you can imagine. Why had I never known of this remarkable actress? Probably because in her 30s, career prime during the 1950s, her leftism got her blacklisted from movies and television. But now, 15 years after her death, among actors and theater folk, she remains a superstar for her acting classes. Her two books on the subject are required reading and theater programs, and Hagen disciples are teaching her techniques to a new generation. Jeff London spoke with some actors who studied with her to find out what made her so good. His story begins with Uta Hagen on Charlie Rose's TV show in 1996, 
when he asked how she wanted to be remembered. When people always talk about my teaching, I say, I want to go down as an actress. And I want to go down as an actress who passed on what she learned and knew to other people, uh, rather than to be first a teacher. She changed the style of theater. Emmy and Tony Award-winning actor David Hyde Pierce appeared with Uta Hagen in her last stage performance. And I think she wasn't satisfied with that style of performing, or as Austin Pendleton theorized, which I love, he felt like she had to come up with all this grounding reality because of the, otherwise she would just fly off into the wings because she was so innately theatrical. Character, actor, and teacher, Austin Pendleton. I saw a preview of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, and I saw my acting teacher, Uta Hagen, and it was awesomely exciting. God, she really can do what she teaches. I think it's the most electric performance I've ever seen. Deserted. Abandoned. Left out in the cold like an old pussycat. <laughs> Can I get you a drink, Martha? Why, thank you, George. It's very kind of you. No, no, Martha. I'd do anything for you. Would you, George? I'd do anything for you, too. Would you, Martha? Why, certainly, George. Martha, I've misjudged you. And I've misjudged you, too, George. <laughs> Everybody. When she was a junior at Columbia University in the 1990s, film actress Amanda Peet began studying with Uta Hagen. She was also truly uninterested in stardom, glamour, the sort of bullshit part of the business, the Hollywood part of the business. She really wanted to instill in all of us the idea of just being a journeyman actor and a citizen in the world and an observer. Actress Christine Lottie says she uses Hagen's techniques when she teaches. I just remember watching her work and always saying to her, you practice what you preach. I can tell what you want. You're not playing the emotion. You're playing your objective. You're not ever indulgent. It is always filled with interesting behavior and choices. And you're so alive moment to moment. I mean, that's the thing that was, I guess, her greatest gift as an actress. Uta Hagen knew she was going to be an actress from an early age. She grew up in Göttingen, Germany. I saw Elizabeth Bergner play St. Joan in Berlin when I was six. And I never forgot it. And when I saw it, I thought, that's where I want to be. To enter into that world of make-believe where you are somebody else. I've had 900 lives through all the parts I've played. Hagen's father was an art historian, her mother an opera singer. Their family moved to Madison, Wisconsin, where her father taught at the university. As a teenager, Hagen appeared in a production of Noel Coward's Hay Fever at the school. She felt so encouraged that she wrote a letter to Ava Legallian, the famous actor-manager. Alan Pally curated an exhibit about Hagen at the Lincoln Center Library for the performing arts. And Legallian writes back to her and says, if you come east sometime, you can audition for me. She did. Hagen was hired to play Ophelia to Legallian's Hamlet on Cape Cod, and her career was launched. One year later, at the age of 19, she was on Broadway, playing Nina in The Seagull with the legendary acting team of Alfred Lunt and Lynn Fontaine. She got sensational personal notices with the Lunts 
Academy Award-winning actor F. Murray Abraham studied with Uta Hagen in the 1960s. And she was so full of herself, she missed her first entrance. Miss Fontaine was, uh, she was vamping. And then Uta shows up, and they do this scene. And as soon as they make their exit, Miss Fontaine almost knocked her down with a smack across her. I said, don't you ever do that again. I don't know if you can do that these days, but she never missed another entrance, did she? Lesson learned. Even as a young woman, Hagen took the craft of acting seriously. Over the decades, she unflinchingly criticized her performances in her diaries, and she had little use for those who didn't act with the same level of commitment. She had no such problem with actor Paul Robeson. If it were now to die, T'were now to be most happy, for I fear my soul hath a content so absolute that not another comfort like to this succeeds in unknown fate. The heavens forbid, but that our loves and comforts should increase, even as our days do grow. Amen to that sweet pause. The two starred in a hit production of Shakespeare's Othello in 1942, which featured the first interracial kiss on Broadway. Not only was the production a sensation, it went on a national tour, and Hagen had an affair with Robeson, even as she was married to Jose Ferrer, who was playing Iago. Traveling with an African-American actor across the country opened Hagen's eyes, says Alan Pally. Robeson wasn't allowed to stay in certain hotels. It was the first production where Equity and Robeson demanded that they not play segregated houses. And so it was groundbreaking in many ways. And even as her stage career flourished through the 1940s and into the 50s, Hagen was also politically active. While she toured as Blanche in A Streetcar Named Desire, she supported the Progressive Party. She made speeches on behalf of social justice, on behalf of Henry Wallace for president, and she got a lot of criticism for that. And people would write letters saying, nobody is going to come and see you in the theater. And there were threats, but of course, she sold out. So a lot of those threats were bogus, but it did feed into the fact that she was blacklisted. Years later, Hagen made a Freedom of Information request to see her FBI dossier, and it was hundreds of pages long. Alan Pally displayed a partially redacted page from the document in the exhibit at Lincoln Center about an appearance the immigrant actress made at the American Committee for the Protection of Foreign Born. She fought on behalf of people who were in threat of being deported because of their political views, which was a real threat in those days. And she happened to attend a meeting of a group that was considered subversive, as many groups were, and she read the Emma Lazarus poem, Give Me Your Tired, Your Poor. So that is one of the kinds of things that led to her blacklisting this poem that is at the foot of the base of the Statue of Liberty. In fact, in 1954, journalist Edward R. Murrow gave Uta Hagen a chance to speak to the American public about her blacklisting. She wrote an essay for his radio program, This I Believe. In it, she quotes George Bernard Shaw, talks about Mozart and Beethoven, and gives a sense of many of her lifelong passions. I was proud the day I first learned to make a good loaf of bread, to have learned a simple thing which others could enjoy or to plant a bulb in the ground and tend it and help it grow, or to give birth to a child and help her reach her own individual freedom, 
or to make a character in a play come off the printed page and become a human being with a point of view who can help others to understand a little more. All these things and the effort to do them well make it possible for me, while struggling through the unreal part of life and being threatened, blackmailed, insulted and starved, to be true to myself and to fight the good fight. If appearances during the golden age of television and in Hollywood were blocked, the theater was welcoming. Hagen won a Tony for Clifford Odette's The Country Girl in 1950 and played Shaw's St. Joan, the role that inspired her career, the next year. She appeared in her share of flops, but she also had begun teaching in earnest. Hagen had appeared in a play with a German émigré, Herbert Berghoff, in 1947, they married ten years later, and he asked her to teach at his school, H.B. Studio. She recalled the invitation in a DVD, Uta Hagen's acting class. When I first began, Herbert had a studio, and he said, why don't you join us? I said, first of all, I was 27 years old. I said, I don't know how to teach. And he said, you know how to act? Share what you have learned. Well, that was to me such a wonderful way of approaching it. Hagen had an almost preternatural ability to tap not only into her emotions when she appeared on stage, but to recognize the range of behaviors that came with them. So she began to investigate how to develop acting exercises to help her students tap into that self-knowledge. I began working at home by myself. We can always tell somebody how we feel about something, but what we did when we felt a certain way, we're unable to describe. So I started to watch myself at home in in a variety of circumstances and then see if I could bring into being and recreate just two minutes of a simple task while I was at home, understanding everything that was the cause of my behavior. Some of the exercises she created were for the actors to examine how they behaved while they waited for a subway train, or were looking for a lost object, or how they answered the telephone with three different people at the other end of the line. Amanda Peet says that particular exercise was often hilarious to watch. How their voices would change and their manner would change. Like if you're talking to your mom and then your agent called on the other line, you would go from being like, I don't know, I just don't feel well. I just feel like I'm going to be coming down with someone. Hold on a second. Hello? Oh, yeah, sure, I can um, definitely be there, yeah. You know, and just you put on these different facets of your personality, and that has also stuck with me because it's the key to not overacting, and it's the key to, like, finding ways to play characters who you'd otherwise be very judgmental of. One aspect of Hagen's teaching was to get actors to use props, not in a fussy way, but to help unlock characters, says Mercedes Rule. When you have props, then you have activities. And when you have an activity, and you're speaking with an activity, the whole thing raises up. It stops being declamatory, and it starts being organic. Because you're doing something, you're cleaning things, you're putting them away, you're stacking them, you're folding them, and you're talking at the same time. And what happens with that is it loosens up the emotion behind what you're saying. Hagen joked in her book, Respect for Acting, that, quote, people who know me will recognize anyone studying with me as they approach the studio because they are usually lugging so many shopping bags full of props. 
But this work with props was not just for her classes. When Hagen prepared her finest role, Martha, the boozy wife of a college professor in Edward Albee's 1962 hit Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, curator Alan Pally says, At the beginning of rehearsals, they had the set, furniture, and props. And she said later in 1982, to me, that was not only precedent setting, I have never heard of anything like it since. To start a play of that length and that difficulty without the props and scenery, we would have had to rehearse eight weeks longer. To me, this was one of the unique experiences of my entire life in the theater, starting with the things that are food for the play, being alive on the stage, every little ice cube, every little clinky glass. I found this the most useful circumstance of any production I've ever been in. Will you get me my drink, please? He's in the math department. He's about 30, blonde, and... and good-looking. Uh, yes, and good-looking. It figures. And his wife is a mousy little type without any hips or anything. Oh. Do you remember them now? Yeah, I guess so, Martha, but why in God's name are they coming over here now? Because Daddy said we should be nice to them. That's oh, why. Oh, May I have my drink, please? Daddy said we should be nice to them. Thank you. That's Arthur Hill as George. Hagen played Martha for two years on Broadway, where she won her second Tony and went to London with the show. Almost 40 years later, David Hyde Pierce saw Hagen's concern with props up close when they appeared together in a two-person play called Six Dance Lessons in Six Weeks. She played an elderly widow. He played her young dance instructor. Ms. Hagen was very insistent that from the first day of rehearsal, we would have in the rehearsal room not plywood or cardboard mock-ups, but she wanted the refrigerator. And it needed to be the refrigerator, not our refrigerator, the refrigerator that we would have on stage because she said, I want to have opened and closed that door a hundred times before I ever do it in front of an audience. And it is both a very practical uh, self-saving thing, which is if there's any problems with this, I'm going to have it figured out. But it's also the thing that gives you the physical behavior that a person who lives in that house and always uses that refrigerator has without thinking about it. But Pierce says the set designer, Roy Christopher, hadn't found the right cookie tin to use in the play. So we just used a little clear plastic Tupperware for rehearsal. And when we moved into the theater, he had found this amazing metal sort of ornamented container, which, knowing the history of this woman... You could absolutely picture, like, at what point in her life she got it. It was just brilliant that he found this thing. It fit perfectly into the set. And when we got to that scene and she went to reach for the cookies and there was the metal container, she, she picked it up and said, what the hell is this? Another expletive. And hurled it off stage. And then we went back to the plastic Tupperware, and that's what we used for the rest of the play, because that's what she'd been using for rehearsal. Grounding a character was central to Hagen's teaching. She worked with actors on substitution, where they take something from their own lives and imbue it into the role they're playing, and expectation, having a character expect one response when they say a line, but get a different one. Austin Pendleton, who's taught at HB Studio for 50 years, demonstrated for me. Say to me, how are you today, Austin? How are you? Today? Shut up. <laughs> now, she would say, we could play that moment for a year. 
And if you always knew what your expectation was, it can be vague. It can be, oh, I'm fine. But if the expectation is always in place, it's always going to move in on you and trigger spontaneous behavior, no matter how long you do the play. When you talk to Hagen's students, one mantra keeps coming up. Mark Nelson, who also teaches at HB Studio, says on the first day of class with Hagen, he was a nervous wreck. And she crouched down next to me and whispered so nobody else in the class could hear. It was private. And she said, if I have two minutes and I want to relax so that I can act, I ask myself, where am I? Where have I just come from? And what do I want to do? And if I know the answers to those three questions, I relax. There have been lots of influential acting teachers over the years. Konstantin Stanislavski, Lee Strasberg, Stella Adler. And they all have their disciples. But for many, Uta Hagen's toolbox is one they come to again and again. And for those who were lucky enough to learn about it from Hagen herself, well, the lessons never go away. Mercedes Rule now teaches in the same room where she studied with Uta Hagen. It was the most magical place to me. It saved my life at that time. And I think she focused me in a way that was absolutely necessary and key to my moving on. And her belief in me gave me belief in myself. Whether she was teaching or acting, for Uta Hagen, it was all about... How to be a human being on stage. And you never stop learning about that. And not look like an actor, but look like a human being on stage. And still have total communication with that audience. That's the real craft, and that's bottomless. Jeff London produced our story. Coming up... Can you name this tune? It's kind of a scary song if you think about it. I think it might just be because of how dark it sounds. The story of the unshazamable, most mysterious song on the internet. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. In 2013, a a zillion peculiar and kind of cool videos suddenly popped up on YouTube. They were all similar, but not identical. They're these abstract, random red and blue triangles, and each video is scored with electronic sounds. So what were these videos? Of course, the internet speculated wildly. Maybe some kind of viral marketing stunt? Signals from a spy? Messages from extraterrestrials? As it turned out, none of the above. After all the internet talk, a tenacious blogger in Italy traced the videos to Google's offices in Zurich. And Google, which owns YouTube, confessed. The videos were a way they tested YouTube's video quality. In the social media age, small truths like that are regularly unearthed. When the internet bands together, by golly, it can solve anything. But can it? Really? The hive mind may have met its match in what's come to be known as the most mysterious song on the internet. Studio 360's Sam Kim has the story. 
In March 2007, someone named Anton went on a couple of music websites. He was asking for help. He wrote, I recorded this in 1982 to 1984 from a German radio station, and I've been looking for the singer ever since. And then he uploaded this song. stumped everybody on the internet, including this guy from Cincinnati, Brandon. He asked us only to use his first name. Like many other people, when I first heard it, it sounded very familiar. I was just racking my brain trying to figure out what song it was, and I couldn't. And that really bothered me. We think he's speaking in English. We can't tell. It's kind of a scary song if you think about it. Just because of how dark it sounds. The recording, since it's so old, it's kind of deteriorated. It's a bit slowed down and off pitch. Some people think it may be some kind of lost demo from a bigger band like Depeche Mode or Joy Division, but I definitely don't think it's one of those. Many of those guesses were immediately ruled out, and after a few weeks, the replies started to dry up. Until a few years later, when somebody named uh, Gabriel... That's Gabriel Vieira. He's a sound engineer in Brazil. He had a friend from Dead Wax Records who told him about this song. So it just, it was right up his alley, you know, to look for this song. And then he just started posting it everywhere on the internet he possibly could to get as much coverage as he could. Gabriel created a new page on Reddit dedicated to the song, and it quickly gained over 2,800 followers in July. Today, it's over 4,000. And Brandon became a moderator for one of the discussion sites. And that eventually worked because when it made it to YouTube, uh, the video got lots of hits, and it really just kind of created that fire for people to search for it. And collectively, all the videos about this song racked up over a million views. And I think there's a good dose of lightning in a bottle going on here. It just, there's plenty of mystery songs you can go on the internet and find nothing about. And this one just happened to be the one that caught fire. What set this song apart were the unintelligible lyrics. It sounds like he's speaking a language, but you can't really pick up on it. I think that has something to do with people's interest with it. Gabriel isolated the vocals and he shared it with the online community. They tried to decipher what the singer was saying and speculated on what the song is about. People generally agree on the first part. Like the wind, you came here running. The rest is up for debate. The most disputed part of the lyrics is the sixth line. Some people think it's, there's no sense communication. Or is it safe communication? Or maybe unification? We have a theory that the lyrics are about the Berlin Wall and the split between East and West Germany and a yearning for unification. And what I like is that somehow 35 years later, the song accomplished what it wants to do in unifying people just in a much different way. And everyone was wondering about the original poster of the song, Anton. 
Who was he? And where did he get this recording? One poster speculated that Anton might actually be the singer. No one has been able to contact Anton ever since his original posts. He just disappeared. But there was a clue in his messages. He mentioned that back in the 80s, he listened to a German radio show called Music for Young People. That was run by Paul Baskerville. Paul Baskerville is now hosting a radio show called Nacht Club. So we've contacted Paul. He didn't recognize the song, but maybe his listeners would. So on July 21st, he played the song on his show. Wenn einer von euch es kennt, wäre es natürlich wunderbar. Ihr würdet einige Leute im Netz sehr glücklich machen. Hier ist also the mysterious song or the most mysterious song on the internet. Nobody in the audience could identify the song. We asked them if they have any archives of their past broadcasts, but they don't keep them from that far back. So unfortunately, that lead is kind of a dead end as of right now. But it wasn't all for naught. It did get the attention of somebody very important to the story. Hey, it's me. I'm Anton, but I'm not Anton, I'm Lydia. It turns out that Anton is actually someone named Lydia. She lives in... I'll let her pronounce it. Uh, I'm in Wilhelmshaven. It's a small town in the northern part of Germany, not far from the sea. And like Brandon, she prefers to keep her last name to herself. Lydia heard the episode of Knocked Club. She was shocked to discover that her internet question from 2007 inadvertently created this internet community. Um, that's the most crazy thing, I think, from my life. So why did she call herself Anton back then? Almost everything was done under an alias, because when I was using the internet and asking questions and I did it as a female, I didn't like the way people were acting sometimes. So I decided to act as a male person. And she finally explained where this tape originally came from, a 14-year-old kid. It was first recorded by my brother, probably in between 1982 and 1984. We can't figure it out anymore. It's too long ago. And he used to record songs from the radio after school nearly every day. It became a collection for, I think, about, don't know, 40 or 50 cassettes. Usually my brother wrote down, of course, what he was recording. We really don't know how it went lost because he only heard it once in his life on the radio. So it was one chance to write it down and uh, he didn't get it. Maybe he wrote it down and lost the paper. That's a thing he said he has to admit that it's possible too. He has no no idea about it. <laughs> Today, her brother is a graphic designer. He doesn't want his name out there and wants to keep a low profile. Years after Lydia's brother recorded the song, he kept coming back to that tape, trying to figure out who the musician was. He couldn't stop thinking about it. He was trying all the time through all the years to find it. He talked to people. He asked everybody who used to listen to similar music like this. And I'm not sure if it's still only the song. It's it's become, just let me pull the word in my translator, sorry. Um, selbstständig. It, it, it's not connected anymore to the song. 
It's more about the searching, about finding out. He eventually digitized the song and sent it to Lydia. I'm not sure if it was a good idea, but in 2007, I thought, do something about it. Make your brother a little bit more happy and try to find out what was singing that because he couldn't, he couldn't let, let it go. So I uploaded it. <laughs> She's still waiting for an answer. But today, the most mysterious song on the Internet has become a meme. It inspires the creativity of the people drawn in by the mystery. There's a cover by Mike Mills. Like the wind. It has over 40,000 hits. You came There's a remake to sound like something from a Sega Genesis game. And an acoustic version by W&N Covers. But the covers can't substitute for the real thing. As the commenters on YouTube wrote, we must find this song. And someone else said, some German guy from the 80s doesn't know how much of an impact this song has had. I'm absolutely curious who it is. And I'm sure they'd be happy to know that 35 odd years later, people are interested in what they had to say. You can listen to The Most Mysterious Song on the Internet at studio360.org. And if you've got any information about the song, you can email Lydia at mysteriousong84 at gmail.com. Sam Kim produced that story. And that's it for this week's show. I want to thank my three great guest hosts of the last three weeks, Hari Kondabolu, Maeve Higgins, and Hanif Abdurraki. Thanks. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. The production team is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Andrew Adam Newman. Sandra Lopez-Monsalve. Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. The silkiness of his skin. It's sumptuous. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, how the Joker's makeup evolved from Cesar Romero. <laughs> Hello, kiddies. Meet the Joker. To Heath Ledger. Well, you look nervous. Is it the scars? Now to Joaquin Phoenix. When you bring me out, can you introduce me as Joker? My symposium with Hollywood makeup wizard Rick Baker next time on Studio 360.